0: C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters is a Christian classic, even though it is not even 100 years old. The original book was published before 1950, sometime during the Second World War. And here it is, it's only 160 pages. You can get copies that are 100 pages or so long. And what this little book is, is a collection of letters from one demon to another. On the back is a drawing. Uh, this is Lewis's own drawing of what he perceived screw Tape to look like. <coughs> Screwtape is this author of the letters. And that's the name of a demon. And he wrote... To a younger demon named, is it Wormtone? Wormwood. Wormwood. So, screw tape writing to Wormwood. There are 31 letters. This book is very helpful because what it does is it opens your eyes to a spiritual dimension or perspective that is real but forgotten. Demons are very real and Satan is real, but we forget commonly what it is like to be in a spiritual war. This little book will help you. Short little book with 31 letters. Each letter takes about three minutes to read, five minutes to read. So you could finish it in a month with five minutes a day. But I want tonight just to go through the book for you in the next 30 minutes and this book will help you in all areas of life because what Lewis did, as you can see by the titles that I gave to the letters, the letters do not have titles, but I gave them titles and I didn't cover every letter here. I just covered some of the best parts of the letters, but he basically covers a broad area of Christian living. And each time he writes, he's going to write about the enemy. Now, who is the enemy? It's the demon writing about the enemy. So, who's the enemy? Whenever he writes the word enemy, he's referring to God. So, every time through this book, when the word enemy is written, it's a capital E. Because it's the demon writing about his enemy. And who is his enemy? God. And it gives a great understanding of what it is to be in spiritual warfare. So, every letter is about the patient. Who is the patient? It's a man. So there's one man from letter 1 to letter 31. And in letter 31, I'll tell you what happens at the end. The man dies. And the demon is trying to do what when he dies? He's trying to keep the man alive. Because the man had become a Christian. So the demon doesn't want the man to die. He wants him to stay alive until he falls into sin. It is so helpful because especially with the idea of witchcraft and curses and spirits, we commonly have the idea that Satan wants to kill us and God wants to keep us alive. In this book... God wants to take his own child and bring him home. Just like we learned on Sunday night from John 17, 24. I will that those whom you have given me would be with me where I am so that they would see my glory. That happens in the last letter. Screwtape writes and says he escaped. What does he mean when he says the patient escaped? He made it out of earth and he made it to heaven. So Screwtape is angry and he writes to Wormwood and says, The man escaped. And did you see? Did you see that bright light coming? That was the king coming to take him. And we hear a very different position, don't we? We hear that Satan wants to kill you and God wants to keep you alive. Lewis says, No. The demons are trying to keep you alive so that you can fall into sin. Let's go through a few of these letters. And what we are going to learn in this book, even more than we learn about demons, we are going to learn about human nature. You can see that right there in bullet number two. This is a book on human nature. And I think we can safely say, if you understand... Human nature, you are well-educated. Alexander Pope, the English poet, said, the proper study of mankind is man. What we need to study is man. And do you remember, I've told you this before, John Calvin put on page number one of his very large book, The um, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, on page number one, he says, Should we start by studying man? Or should we start by studying God? And what does he say? Should we start with God or man? What? It doesn't matter. If we start with God or we start with man. Because you cannot understand God unless you understand. And you cannot understand man unless you understand this book that we're about to go through is a discussion of man. And there's a lot of things about yourself that you don't know that maybe you'll learn from C.S. Lewis when he has one demon right to another demon. Let's try to understand a few of those things. Uh, page 14, uh, letter number one, he, and I'm just going to give you some of these wonderful quotes here. He says, Do you begin, Wormwood, to see the point? Thanks to processes which we set at work in them centuries ago. The demons are dealing over centuries and we are working with 20 years, 50 years. You see, you can only think about time from 1980 until today. But the demons are thinking of time from a thousand years ago until today. And we need to... That's one of the reasons we need to study history. To understand how is the world moving? What is happening with history? What's happening with kings and politics and economics? How is the soul of man changing? Thanks to processes which we set at work in them centuries ago... They find it all but impossible to believe in the unfamiliar while the familiar is before their eyes. He means anything that's different from them, they can't believe in. Have you noticed that about yourself? You find it very difficult to put yourself in someone else's shoes. You find it very difficult to understand how a Chinese person thinks. Now you, you have been in a Western world for a long time, but even now there's sometimes when I say things or do things, you think, oh, oh, right. Doesn't that happen? Because I have a way of life that may be different from your way of life. And when, when my way of life comes up, you think, what is he doing? And I'm the same way with you because We find it all but impossible to believe anything except what is very, very familiar to us. Learn that about yourself and be quick to change, quick to learn. Letter number two, my dear Wormwood in letter number two, the man, the patient becomes a Christian. So in letter number one, Screwtape writes and says, do not let him become a Christian. But even though the demons work as hard as they can, the man still becomes in chapter two, a Christian because there's someone more powerful than the demons. In chapter two, he becomes a Christian. Chapter three is on home relationships. Wow. Chapter three covers his relationship with his mother. What an interesting section. He writes, one, the demon writes, you must bring this man into a condition in which he can practice self examination for an hour without discovering any of those facts about himself, which are perfectly clear to anyone else who has ever lived with him or worked with him. You want to put the man in a position so he can look inside himself for an hour and he still misses the thing. There are things that I do that you can see and I will sit and pray in the morning and say, oh, what about this and this and this? I'll come out the other side. I have a dear friend who says, I've examined myself and I'm right. I have no sin that I know of. And others look and say, well, but that... And that, isn't that the way we are? You're learning about yourself. You look at yourself for an hour. You can't see anything. Your wife looks at you for 10 seconds. This is right there. Right? He keeps going. Thus, you can rub the wounds of the day a little sorer, even while he is on his knees in prayer. So he's down praying, Oh, help, help. And then in his mind, he thinks, but you know, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm not doing anything wrong. But she, look at her. That's what the demons are doing. Page 23. Your patient must, uh, who's the patient? It's the Christian, okay? Your patient must demand that all his own utterances are to be taken at their face value and judged simply on the actual words while at the same time judging all his mother's utterances with the fullest and most oversensitive interpretation of the tone and the context and the suspected intention. He means, get your patient in the position so that Everything he says he thinks is gentle and kind, and everything the mother says, oh, that's so offensive. I can't believe the way she talked that way to me. Listen to this next one. Once this is established, you have the delightful situation. Now remember, when he says it's delightful, he's a demon. So it's it's actually a what? A bad situation, okay? Once this is established, you have the delightful situation of a human saying things with the express purpose of offending and yet being angry when the person is offended. If you have a husband or a wife or children, you know what that's like. You say something and secretly you want to just kind of jab. You say it like this, so calmly. And then the person gets angry and you say, what? I didn't shout. I didn't, what? Why are you angry? But later on, if you look honestly, what were you doing? And you said, but I didn't do anything. That's the work of demons or the work of our own human nature. Let's keep going here. Uh, Chapter six. Oh, there's some good quotes here on introspection. In all the activities of mind, all the things you think about, which favor our cause. Whose cause? The demons. In all of the mind's thoughts that help the demons, encourage the patient to forget... And to concentrate on something else. But in all the activities of the mind favorable to the enemy, who's the enemy? Bend his mind back on himself. So if there's, if, if there's something that a demon wants you to do, then you don't think at all about the demons working. You think about that thing out there. But if there's something that God wants you to do, then don't think about that thing. Think about yourself. Why? Why? For example, let an insult fix in his attention, fix his attention outward so that he does not reflect. I am now entering into the state called anger. Right? Isn't that what happens? When someone someone says something to you that's not kind, you immediately start thinking about them, their words. You don't ponder and say, what's happening to my soul? And that's what a demon wants. He wants you, think about them. Don't think about yourself. That's that's why I was working with you today. We've always got to be thinking, when we get in a tense conversation, we "Whoa, whoa, what am I doing here? It's the work of the demons to try to trap us in those ways. You must keep on shoving all the virtues outward till they are finally located in the circle of fantasy and all the desirable qualities inward into the will. Let's keep moving. Uh, Letter 10 is on worldliness. Very interesting. Let me read a few quotes to you from worldliness. I don't think that matters... I don't think that matters much provided that you can persuade him to postpone any open acknowledgement of the fact. And this, with the aid of shame, pride, modesty, and vanity, will be easy to do. So you're trying to get him to forget thinking carefully about the temptations that are coming. He will be silent when he should speak, and he will laugh When he should be silent. Isn't that what we do? I'm supposed to talk. But what do I do? I'm quiet. And I'm supposed to be quiet. And instead I laugh and encourage the people. There's a bad joke. And I laugh because I don't want everyone to look at me. and Hey. All mortals tend to turn into the thing that they are pretending to be. Wow. Which is why Blaise Pascal, hundreds of years ago, said if you want to be a Christian, but you're finding it hard to understand everything in the Bible, just start pretending. Just go to church and start praying. Now, he's not talking about if you're a fake and in your heart you love sin and you want to deceive people. He means If you really, if you say, I want to be a Christian, but when I try to read the Bible, it's so hard to understand. If the person really wants to understand the Bible, then Blaise Pascal would say, then just start pretending. Go to church like a Christian would go. Every morning, get up and pray. He'd say, but I'm not a Christian. Just try. Just get up and pray. And, And then read your Bible every day. But I'm not a Christian. Just read it and see what happens. And this is what he says. All mortals tend to turn into the thing they are pretending to be. Since the enemy's servants have been preaching about the world. As one of the great temptations for 2,000 years. It might be difficult. For you to make them forget the world. But fortunately. The enemy's. Servants have stopped talking about the danger of the world for the last few decades. Wow. The demons are happy when, who are the servants of the enemy? Christians and pastors. And the pastors have stopped talking about what? The dangers of the world. And who is happy? And say, hey, even though the Bible is filled with verses like, do not love the world, relax. Because I know they haven't talked about that for 50 years now. Oh, chapter 11 is one of the best in the whole book. It's on humor. And I'm going to have to read you most of this chapter. Chapter 11. Uh, This is the demon writing. I divide the causes of human laughter into four categories joy, fun, the joke, flippancy. Okay, follow those four joy, fun, the joke, flippancy. So he talks about, he talks about real laughter and joy. And he says, we don't like that at all, but the joke that we can use, he says, we can use, so the joy, we can't use joy at all. We don't like any laughter that comes from joy. Fun, that's not very easy for demons to use either. But the joke, we can use the joke. That's number three. The joke turns on a sudden perception of incongruity. Incongruity means something is not equal. So it doesn't match. The joke turns on a sudden unequalness. Isn't that right? You find something funny when someone makes a joke and the two things don't match, but they just match just a little bit. And then, oh, okay, he's matching it like that. All right. Oh, that's funny. Sometimes I'll, I'll be joking when we're studying the Bible and I'll say, okay, open your Bible to the book of Matthew, uh, Nico." that's in the New Testament. And some people will laugh. Why will they laugh? Because they know a person who does not know that Matthew is in the New Testament and Nico are those the same? They're not the same at all. Nico knows that Matthew is in the, but here I compared two things that are not the same. A person who knows nothing about the Bible and Nico, they're not all the same. So you laugh or maybe someone would laugh. Maybe you don't laugh <laughs> so, because it's something that it doesn't fit, but there's a little thing that fits because Nico is still a person, right? So there's something that fits in there. That's what he says, a joke. But listen to how he talks about the joke. The real use of jokes is in quite a different direction. For example, among the English who take their sense of humor so seriously that a deficiency in the sense of humor is almost the only sin at which they feel shame. That is true, not just in the English, but all around us. People take their jokes very seriously. Which is why these days they're cutting out comedians. They won't allow jokes. Can't make any jokes about things. Humor is for them the all-consuming and the all-excusing grace of life. Listen to this. Therefore, humor in a joke is invaluable as a means of destroying Shame. That's why they make jokes about fornication. We should be angry and disgusted at fornication. But the world and the TV makes jokes about it. And what happens? Instead of feeling anger, your anger slowly goes and you get used to it. Lewis saw that long ago. He said, if a man lets other people pay for him, then we all say, ah, that guy, he's lazy. He's good for nothing. But he says, if he makes a joke and mocks his friend for having been scored on, he is no longer a good for nothing, but a clever man. Have You ever seen that? If you just say, ah, give me that for free, look at you. But if you make some little joke, ah, look at you, you can't finish all that. I'll have to help you with that. Ah, look, I got this, see? All of a sudden, we think he's the clever guy. And he says, the thing that we should feel shame at, the guy just took something without working. He didn't offer, no, no, let me pay for you. Instead, he used a 50 cent joke to get around his shame. Almost anything he wants to do can be done, not only without shame, but with the admiration, the approval of his friends. If only he can twist it into a joke. You can now sin in any way you want and your friends will applaud you if you can just twist it into a joke. You go and get drunk, Then you make jokes about it. Oh, he's so clever. But that's, those are the first four. Those are the four categories. But the first one, joy. He said, we don't want anything to do with joy. Joy is the laughter of heaven. We hate it. It's the laughter of the enemy. Fun. We can't do much with that either. The joke, we can work with the joke. If we can just get people to joke and to reduce their shame, that's good. But what was the fourth category? Flippancy. Flippant means taking it light. This is what the demon says. Flippancy is the best of all. In the first place, it is very economical. Only a clever human can make a joke. But any of them can be trained to talk as if everything were funny have you ever seen foolish boys at school who don't study and don't work hard and they're just always laughing at the teacher and the school and the authority and some of their friends laugh with them maybe he he just he's so strong his personality is strong <laughs> look look at you look what you're doing he hasn't made a clever joke at all in fact Maybe there's a boy over there who is trying to be pure. He's trying to have self-control. This man has no purity and no self-control. And what does he say about the other boy? Ah, look at you. Ah, man, you can't even get a girlfriend. Is there anything clever in that? Nothing clever. It's not a joke. But he, by flippancy, can get the other boys to laugh at that boy. He has twisted even the virtue. Here's a man doing a good thing. I've seen it happen even when workers work hard. If two or three guys work hard and one or two guys don't, the guy who doesn't will start mocking. Oh, look at these guys running. <laughs> running like you got no time. You think time's going to run out. That's not funny at all. There's no joke in it. But he's pretending it's a joke, and people will laugh. And it's that flippancy. It's that flippancy that the demons like. By this, every serious subject is discussed in a manner which implies that it's just ridiculous. If flippancy is prolonged, it builds up around the man... The finest armor against the enemy that I know. Who is the enemy? If a man wants to build up armor against God, just start laughing at every good thing. That's why Proverbs 14 verse 9 says, fools laugh at sin. It is a thousand miles away from joy. That's right. There is real laughter that is full of joy. And that's the kind of thing you see when your baby starts to walk and mom and dad are looking. And what are they laughing at? What's so funny? Oh, it's the funniest thing. It's the most pleasing thing. The little guy starts to walk. That's real laughter. And that always works for the enemy. It always helps God when people are rejoicing and laughing in these pure and holy things. Well, there's some ideas there. This is the best chapter in the book though. Chapter 14, chapter 14. This is a chapter on humility. Oh, the best chapter in the book. My dear Wormwood, the most alarming thing in your last account of the patient is that he is no longer making confident promises No more commitments to be perpetually holy. He only hopes every day and hour to be given grace. This is very bad. Your patient has become humble. The demons, they want you to talk big. Oh yeah, I'm gonna be the greatest. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to do all these things. Uh, In 20 years, you wait to see what I've done. The demons like that. What do they want? They want you to be saying, 20 years. Oh God, just help me make it through until the evening. Help me. Please, just help me make it through till 5 o'clock. The demons are terrified of that kind of man because that kind of man has become humble. Humble. Listen to the very next line, your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to that? All virtues are less damaging to us once the man knows that he has them, but this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and put into his mind the thought, "Well." I am certainly humble. And immediately pride. Pride in his own humility will appear. When he awakens to the danger of this new pride and tries to smother it, make him proud of his attempt. And so on through as many stages as you please. <laughs> Doesn't that ha- has that ever happened to you? That's happened to me. You must therefore conceal from the patient the true goal of humility. Let him think of humility not as forgetting himself, but let him think humility is a certain kind of low opinion of his own talent. Some talents he really has, but fix in his mind that humility is trying to believe his talents are less valuable than they are. And then he gives examples. Uh, Where's his examples here? Many men think that humility is a beautiful woman trying to believe she is ugly and a clever man trying to believe he is stupid. But since what they are trying to believe may be nonsense, they cannot succeed in believing it. And we have the chance of keeping their minds endlessly moving about on themselves rather than on the enemy. Isn't that good? So here's a guy who's really good at soccer. And he says, hey, tell that guy, Tell that guy to say, no, I'm really bad at soccer. I'm bad at soccer. I'm not good at soccer. Here's a guy who's, he's a really good doctor. And, and you tell him, doctor, if you want to be humble, just keep telling yourself you're a bad doctor. No, that's not humility. A beautiful woman does not have to look in the mirror and say, you're so ugly. You're so ugly. That's not humility. What is humility? The enemy wants to bring the man into a state of mind where he could design the most beautiful building in the world and know it to be the most beautiful and rejoice in his beautiful building without being any more or less glad at whether he did it or whether someone else did it. Hey, that's it. God wants you to be the best soccer player let's say and shoot from 60 meters out and score and then be very glad that you scored but no more glad than you would be if he scored to be equally glad that that's humility i scored and i'm happy but i'm not any more happy than i would be if she did it that is exactly right thank you lewis The enemy wants him in the end to be so free from bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents just as much as in his neighbor's talents. He wants to kill their self-love as soon as possible. He means God wants to kill your self-love. His whole effort, this is the enemy, the enemy, His whole effort, therefore, will be to get the man's mind off the subject of his own value altogether. He would rather the man thought himself a great architect or a great poet and then forgot about it than that he would spend time trying to think himself a bad architect. So go ahead. Preach a great sermon and then say, yeah, that was a good sermon. And then forget about it. And don't keep thinking, yeah, I'm I'm really good. You know, and all day long you're thinking of how good you are. No one sees it, but it's in your mind all day. No, preach a great sermon and then stop thinking about it. So if you're John MacArthur, preach and then when you're done, say, I think the Lord blessed that. I worked very hard. I think that was a good sermon. Let's move on. What do I care? I did it, and I'll be just as happy if he does it. Or A man is not usually called upon to have an opinion of his own talents at all. The enemy will also try to render real in the patient's mind a doctrine which they all profess, but find it difficult to bring home to their feelings. What doctrine do you pretend to believe but find it hard to feel? The doctrine that they did not create themselves and everything they have was given to them they might as well be proud of the color of their hair. What did I do to get that color? Nothing. What did you do for the color of your hair? Why are you going to be proud in it? I'm so beautiful. It was completely given to you. You did nothing. Well, that is probably the best chapter in the book. And I, 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 think, I think we'll just close with one... Let me just jump to one more, one more section here. Letter 21. There are some excellent things, but you get the idea here. Uh, One more, letter 21, uh, page 106. This is on personal rights. Men are not angered by mere misfortune. So we don't get angry when something bad happens to us. We are angry by misfortune that we think is an injury. Misfortune was when something bad happens, and injury is when someone does something bad. So maybe it rains and it gets your 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 book wet. But if you think someone poured water on your book, then you get angry. Men are not angered by mis- mere misfortune, but by misfortune conceived as injury, and the sense of injury depends on the feeling that a legitimate claim has been denied. The more claims on life, therefore, that your patient can make, the more often he will feel injured and angry. So the demons are trying to get you to go out and make claims. That's mine. That's mine. Don't, t- hey, hey, don't, t- don't do that. Don't take my time. That's what he says here. Now you will have noticed that nothing throws humans into a passion so easily as to find a piece of time which he thought was his own and then take it from him. Is that true? If you think this is Saturday morning and I got, I, I got this time for myself, I got these three hours, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to do what I want here, and then someone takes it, don't you find you get, get up? Uh! That's what he says. Now these anger the man because he regards his time as his own and feels that someone has stolen it. My time is my own, he says. Let him have the feeling that he starts each day as the owner of 24 hours. And let him feel it is a tax when anyone comes to take that time from him. The man can neither make nor maintain one moment of time. It all comes to him as a gift. He might as well regard the sun and the moon as his personal property. I need this. I don't know about you. I need this. When I speak of preserving this assumption in his mind, the last thing i mean you to do is to give it... Da, da, da. Move on here. Oh, we demons produce this sense of ownership not only by pride but by confusion. We teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded difference that run through my shoes, my dog, my servant, my wife, my father. My country, my God. They can be taught to reduce all of these words to the same idea in my shoes. The my of ownership. Now think about that. My shoes, my dog, my wife, my country, my God. Do you own your country the way you own your shoes? Do you own your wife the way you own your shoes? Do you... Own God in any way? But demons are trying to teach us to think, oh, Yamina, The dianga Hiji. He says, that's a great trick. And all the time the joke is that the word mine, in its full sense, cannot be said by any human being about anything. Is that right? My life. No, it's not. Whose life is it? Well, it's my watch who gave it to me. It's my day. No, it's his day. My cannot be said fully about anything. Well, you get an idea. That's C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. And all of these unveil what it means to be a human, what it means to be a man. And I hope that each of us will think carefully about what it means to be a human.